Welcome to Susie Explores, a podcast with me, Susie Collier. Today, my guest is the epic, world-renowned guitarist, Steve Vai. We had an amazing conversation that touched on discipline, criticism, forgiveness, and what it is to be a happy learner. Oh, and of course, what it's like to be an incredible guitarist. We could have gone on forever. So listen, the thing is, we seem to have a link that is almost like a blood link. It's just yeah. really weird. <laughs> That's great. We've never met. So I kind of want to know, you've lived a whole lot of life. We've had a whole lot of conversations. If there are more than a few weeks go by and we don't have a conversation, I feel it's a, it's a really strange <laughs> place to be, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but what do you think links you to other people? I kind of feel that there's no accidents in people when they meet. And there's functions that we actually have together. And we may not really even understand what they are, but you can have an instinct of that the moment you even meet a person's energy. You know, so like when I meet a person, there's obviously the way a person looks and these kinds of things. What I've learned so much uh, through the years is how easily we've learned to create an identity for them in our head. Hmm. You know, based on all sorts of myriad things, where they're from, their accent, the clothes they're wearing, their shape, size, color, all these things, whether they're a cook or an athlete or a musician, you know, all these things, whether they're from California or whatever it is, it's just something that we've actually learned to do. So when I've recognized that when you meet another person, a lot of the times you're meeting the identity that you created for them. What I've tried to do more is uh, when meeting a person, just feel the energy, you know, just kind of like the energy that you're looking for in a person. That's what you're going to evoke. I try to just keep a clear slate when I meet somebody and then allow whatever the relationship is to be to start to happen. It's interesting because we have talked about energy lots and lots, but it's a it's something that I just never tire of because the yeah. thing is, when you say that if you look for a certain kind of energy, you're going to get it, yeah. okay? And I like that because it's you're basically saying, I'm open to that. But what about those folks who might be listening in who might say, I was looking for a particular thing and I didn't get it? Because I think that might have a little bit more to do with our own agendas. Well, the looking for a particular thing, not all the time, but usually means that you're expecting a person to be a particular way. Mm. you're expecting something from them. So an expectation can be risky because it's easier to just allow, you know, allow the person to be in, instead of, of, of course, if you're in a relationship and there's certain, you know, expectations that keep things in balance. I'm referring to when we look into another person and expect them to be different so that we're happy. Yeah. Yeah. That never works. No. It's easier to allow them, and this is a miracle that happens when you really authentically just allow them to be, you have no expectations, you will get the best of them for the most part. And let's talk a little bit about the other side then, about how we are. So we're thinking we don't want to have any expectations about who we're going to be meeting and, and their energy. But from my point of view, I'd really like to feel that freedom to not need them to be something. And that's really, I think that is quite a tough thing 
for a lot of people who are encountering difficult situations. And yet, I know that you really have taught me so much about what that means to, it's not just about stepping into their shoes, it's really thinking about how you approach the situation. What I've noticed is people respond to appreciation, authentic appreciation, mm. not, not placation. Placating somebody actually is uncomfortable for the mm. other. It may not, it's, it's nice for the ego, you know. <laughs> But authenticity is uh, carried, even though we may not recognize it sometimes. So, so to authentically allow somebody to be the way they are, it means that you accept them for who they are. And this is this the perspective that I, I try to take. Everybody is contributing to this world. Even though we may criticize what it is, we may believe that we feel that their contribution should be this or could have been that. or And the same with us. We, we could have done this. We should have done that. Or I'm going to do this. But in reality, there's nothing that anybody can do that doesn't contribute somehow. And everybody has this creative impulse. I believe that this is just fact. You know, we have a creative, mm. it could be in any particular thing, something little that we do that we enjoy. If you're enjoying your creative process, you're contributing constructively to the world. If you're not enjoying it and you're complaining about it or it's something that's nefarious or something like that, you're also contributing. But what you're contributing is dysfunction. When a person is contributing their authentic, joyful, creative contributions, this is something to appreciate. This is really for all of us to appreciate and not criticize, you know, because it's not as good as or it should be all this crazy stuff. We have no idea how everything that everybody does is connected to everything else. So you may notice that one of the most empowering things that a person can feel is appreciation for their gifts, appreciation for their creative contribution. There's nothing more empowering than that. This is the thing that we all want to feel as creative people, and we're all creative. You just want to feel like your contribution is valued and it's, it's appropriate. And when you do that for another person, mm. there's no better gift you can give them. And then that relationship transforms into something that you're expecting from them for you to, to an appreciation for their gift that they are giving and doing for you, whatever it is, you know, they could be a doctor, they could be a anything, anything. We have, in one sense, a kind of a beautiful duty of care towards other people and how we treat them, especially when we're thinking about the creative process. And that's yeah. really an exciting thing. But what about the responsibility that I have towards myself with my own attitudes towards my own creative process? That's a good question. It's always good to be friendly with that, to be friendly with your creative process. But in order to be friendly, you have to recognize how you feel first about your yep. creativity. You know, most people that when they're thinking of their creativity, when they're thinking of their joy, their little, their little slice of heaven, which might be stamp collecting or uh, sewing or cooking or making an album, you know, making a whatever it is that is your joy, 
Here's the caveat. You can't authentically be appreciative of other people's gifts unless you can first appreciate your own. I'm talking on an authentic level, not on a thank you very much level. (laughs) You know, like to authentically appreciate that that person is contributing. There's I, I everything is connected. You can't we can't do anything without everybody's contribution. The microphone you're, you're speaking, the computer that way, you know how many people came together exercising their little passions to bring us everything. So you're doing that too. When you can appreciate the gifts that you have, you become friendly and accepting of your own creative nature as opposed to a victim criticizing it because it's not good enough. This is an insanity that we that we inherit you know that we believe that we were taught that our contribution to the world needs to be better than something or somebody else's bigger than or your sense of worth is based on the magnitude of your contribution and this is a mistaken premise completely So when a person realizes, wait a minute, you mean I don't have to stop the wars in order to be considered, you know, uh, valuable to society, you know, or whatever. They appreciate their own gifts. They feel dignity in their creative gifts. And when you do that, when you're able to feel good about your own creative gifts, you will just automatically feel the same with others. You appreciate their gifts, you know. If you're criticizing your own gifts, I'm not good enough. I should be better. Everybody, I'm going to fail at this. Or that you have to project that onto the world. Mm. There's no no question that you project it, and then you will see that in the world because you're looking through it. It's like we're looking through different lenses at different times. But yeah, it's interesting because when we just started this little adventure and we were getting this podcast all ready to cook and I could hear you but I couldn't see you and I could hear you listening to the same couple of bars over and over again (laughs) and I said listen mate tell me what are you trying to change in that editing and you just said oh I'm just I'm just editing but actually I am curious because I think a lot of people would say okay I'm really going to understand that my creative process is of value and I'm going to sit here now and I'm going to edit this track And then as I edit it, I realize that it's not going so well and I'm needing to be, oh, maybe I need to be more strict, more harsh on myself. So this isn't good. I need to really try harder and harder because it's got to be better and better and better. And all of a sudden, even though I feel that I started off with a really, really great understanding of how things are, it's gone pear-shaped. And I think a lot of people would say that within the creative process. We've really tried to sit down. We tried to center ourselves, ground ourselves. Here we go. And then old patterns can really, and old voices can knock on the door and say, come on, let me in. Yeah, the first step in, we're all interested in improving ourselves, uh, even though some may say, no, you know, but you're all, we're always improving ourselves. And uh, that's something that's just kind of inherent in us. We, and we always are. But there's kind of two ways to approach the creative process. One of them is with resistance, pushing, fighting. I, I have mm-hmm. to get better. That's not good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do better. 
everybody else is doing better. That is not going to stack up to the rest of the world's critique. Okay, these are all this is all one way of creating. And also that particular voice says, and I have to be brutally disciplined, brutally disciplined. I don't care what it and I've been through all that. I've done all that, you know, I'm going to sit and I'm going to do this because I know that that's what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to do it, really, but I'm going to fight because I want that goal. Okay, so that's one way, and this is mostly the way of the world, the, the, what we're believed, the way that we have to approach our creative joy is by fighting for our position or fighting to make it happen, fighting for our goals. Okay, so this is very common. As a matter of fact, I might say it's normal. It's completely dysfunctional because it cuts right at the root of your joy, mm. which is the engine of creation. Your joy and your passion for those things that you love are actually your natural state of being. There's another way to do it. And that way is there's no discipline. Well, you know, maybe a little discipline, but there's passion. When there's passion, there is no option. There's just the the joyful expansion. Okay, so one of the reasons why I was so attracted to Jacob uh, when I saw him first as a performer was he embodied that. He, he embodied mm. joyful expression in a way that it, there was just no way it, it wasn't going to happen because there's too much connection in him. Now, it's not uncommon for artists to find challenges in other aspects of their careers and stuff. And some are blessed with the ability to enjoy that, that other way of doing things. And many do. Many do. You know, many, we can't really progress creatively unless we're in that enthusiastic moment of creativity. So the enthusiasm you feel for a good idea is worthy of you and nothing else is of importance, including critique from the outside world that deems you should be different, and more so, including the voices in your head that are resistant and telling you otherwise. But you have to be able to recognize those voices. That's the thing. It is recognizing the voices. Yeah. So I know that people are going to say, well, Steve, you know, you're famous for, for having all the chops in the world. You can speak with the guitar in, in ways that we could only ever dream. So are you saying that, you know, you haven't put in the hard work and you could be saying, well, do you know something? I feel so passionate about what I'm doing that it doesn't feel like being brutally disciplined. But is that right? Is that how it works for you? Yeah, yeah that's how it works. When I was young and I had to play the accordion when I was <laughs> nine... You haven't told me about this. Oh, this all, <laughs> all good Long Island boys, Italian Long Island boys play the accordion at some point. <laughs> and really, I was honestly. nine. Yeah. And I, uh, well, maybe not all, but this one did. And I played a Riverderci Roma and <laughs> Smoke on the Water, you know. But it was great because I was like nine and I, I wanted to know the little black dots, but I didn't like practicing. And my father made me because he was paying $5 a week for these lessons. Oh, You're yes. going to practice a half an hour a day. And I'd be like, I would be sitting there and I, I would like just my whole focus was on the clock. When is this going to be done? When he allowed me to, well, he allowed me, I said, Dad, I, I, you know, after three years of lessons, I could still, 
not, you know, I <laughs> couldn't really play. I said, Dad, I don't, I don't want to play the accordion. I want to play the guitar. He's like, all right, Stevie, you go play the guitar. <laughs> you know, there was a big shift, you know, because it went from applying discipline on the accordion and getting nowhere to pure passion. There was, there was such a, a lighting up, you know, when I discovered the guitar. I don't know why. It, it was just one of those things like, oh, the rest of the world doesn't matter. This is heaven in a cup. And I just want to play. Wow. I couldn't do that before. I could do it now. Wow. Holy mackerel. You mean I could do this? You want to jam? You want to actually play together? Holy mackerel. We're playing a Led Zeppelin song. So like th there's no discipline in any of that. You know, it was just like I'm getting faster. I want to get faster. You know, I want to connect more. I want to I want to hear this more and I can't wait. So the big difference Okay, so there's a really big difference. But then there's Stevie in the sweet shop, age nine, around, or before, and his dad is saying, right, okay, Stevie, you know, you've been a good boy, what sweet tea would you like? And uh, and actually, you both go for the accordion, you say, no, that's, that's a really, really good thing. <laughs> and then, then you say, I don't like that, Dad, you know, I'm gonna... I'd like to have something different over here. Now, it could have been not the holy mackerel moment of joy. It could have been, well, I'm not getting it here. So I'm going to go on and I'm going to go on and on and on, going through the whole sweet shop until I've tried absolutely everything here. But I want to know how much responsibility a teacher or enabler has to find a way in for you on your chosen suite. Well, only you can taste the sweet Okay. when you put it in your mouth. You know what I mean? A good enabler or a good teacher, they're not going to find it for the student. A good one is conscious enough to recognize what the desires are of that young musician. Like, what is their potential? Hard to see right off the bat. What, what are their interests? When I would have students, I'd talk to them about their life, some of the things they, they enjoy doing what they listen to. Because a lot of times they'll come with a belief that I need to play this. And people say that, you know, this is the music I play. I'll be able to have a career and all these kinds of things. And if that's, you know, the desire, that's fine. But a good teacher needs a relatively open student so they can read them and help guide them through the candy shop. Okay. But do you think that if you had a teacher who is really, we're going along with the sweet shop thing. It's really going along a long way now. But you chose the accordion. But I wonder, do you think there was any possibility of your dear teacher enabling you to find a way forward with that instrument that, that could have meant that you had the chops on it and a love for it? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Not when I saw that whammy bar on the guitar. <laughs> That was the end of it. Poor Lester Stanko didn't stand a chance. It was truly a Rivaderci Roma. <laughs> we could really be, we could be saying this about just so many, so many instruments, so many suites. And yeah. it's fine because on your second shot, you scored. But what about the poor blighters who've tried five different things? They know they really love music, but they just feel that they've never found that way in. What do we say? Well, there's so many aspects to the expression of music that involves particular muscles that are existent in some and non-existent in the other. For instance, you're a, you're a conductor and a player, right? 
it's not uncommon, and correct me if I'm wrong, because your experience is vast here. Orchestral musicians, perhaps the majority are not really interested in composing. They want to okay. they want to play the music they of do. the composer. That's mm -hmm. their goal. That's their juice. But if they were starting out and they didn't, they knew they liked music, but they didn't really know. And this was the, the, when I arrived at Berkeley. This was the case for almost every student, you know, the vast majority, at least, you know, they, they liked music, but they didn't they didn't find their note yet. They didn't. Some people did, maybe didn't realize that they respond best to being the musician. And some people, they respond best to being the composer. Some people discovered that they respond best in the legal field of music or the production field or the or the mastering or art. You know, there's so many fields. And I noticed when I went to Berkeley. So the important thing is you recognize a pull to music somehow. So then you got to, you know, you got to go through the candy shop and, and you got to keep your radar open for <laughs> your, your smelling so you could smell the good candy. And have enough respect for yourself to say, oh, I like that. I think <laughs> I like that, you know, because that and that's real simple, but it gets obscured by I like that. But and then you just fill in the blank. So you choose your joy when you are in a state of uh, equal with an equilibrium, a centered equilibrium. If you're in an emotional state, you you. You only have access to things that are only going to be dysfunctional for you. Right. So in a sense, being back in this sweet shop and having a good sniff round, it seems to me like we're back where we started, which is that if I make a judgment about that sweet that I'm just about to have before yeah. I've even given it a go, then it's not really going to help me. It's not going to edify anybody at all. It's in fact, it's a... It's a road to a bad place. Well, it's a it's a road to a, a surprise, you know, because we, we do it all the time. We have expectations about something we we ha and then we ex have an experience that gives us a different message than what our thoughts about something were. This happens. Yes. This happens all the time. And it's the yeah. only way to learn. The only way we ever learn anything is through actually experiencing it ourselves, actually t tasting the candy in the store, putting, putting it in our mouth and going, okay, now I know what this is. Uh, other than that, it's opinion or it's unsecured facts. You know, it's, yeah. you're kind of like uh, wallowing. Wallowing's a really, really good word. Yeah. Sometimes the wallowing is, it's fine. It's necessary sometimes, uh, to, but it's not good to stay there you know, to stay in the wallowing. You have to have respect for yourself to know that you're worthy of doing those things that feel exciting to you. That's really what it's about. It so is what it's all about. But taking you and indeed Pierre back to Berkeley days, it's true when you arrive at Berkeley or the Royal Academy of Music or anywhere that you're going to, some people seem a little bit more cooked than others. You know, some people already have that kind of feel that passion. Yeah. And, and some of us don't know that yet. And we're still trying to find the note, the voice, the kind of way in. Do you think that Berkeley all those years ago, do you think it gave you what you really needed as food 
at that time in your life? Yes, absolutely. I think every experience, I, I don't think there's any accidents, any accidents in any of our experiences and all of the experiences we have are in our best interest. We do, and, and we don't see things this way a lot of times, but Berkeley for me was fantastic on, on different levels than one might assume. For instance, when I was 12 in seventh grade, I entered a, a 12th grade music theory class. And for six years, uh, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. Yeah, six years, every day, I was pounded on intensely. And I learned everything about music. I'm pounded on by learning. You know, I, I, I had to compose every single day. I had to walk in with a piece of written music. And I learned everything. So when I got to Berkeley, a lot of that I, I knew. But the great thing about Berkeley was so many other aspects like the independence that you experience when you're leaving home for the first time and the responsibility that you need to build and acquire and honor for the quality of your own life, your independence, you know? So this is, college is great for that, you know? You meet people that you will have friend, friendly relations with for the rest of your life. To this day, the first person I met was one of my dearest friends today, Dave Rosenthal. And we've had everything. We play together. We're just the best of friends. And, and he um, <clears throat> was just one, you know. And what I noticed also at Berkeley is everybody came there with these desires. But as time went on, they found their, their note. And many of them are I work with today in different fields in the music business. So I learned that I was in an, another great thing about Berkeley was being in an environment where there's such eagerness for playing, for communicating, for learning. And you're surrounded by teachers, teachers that, you know, are, are there to cultivate your interests and to propagate them. And you're surrounded by just tons of musicians. And, and, and one of the greatest things for me about Berkeley was the music library, because at that time, you, we, we, you, there was no downloading. There was no digital <laughs> and you go into the library and you get these little reels. And that's where I heard like all of Stravinsky and yeah, everything. I heard all the Beatles, right? I didn't have Beatles records. You know, I heard the hits, but then I heard every, all Frank Zappa, all Maynard Ferguson. So it's really the quality of the experience you have at any music school is directly joined at the hip of your attitude while you're there. Yeah. No, I get that. Um, you're, yeah. you're actually, um, <laughs> you're making me remember what it was like to go to the Royal Academy of Music Library. Yeah, down to down to the LP section, and I can. Oh, they had LPs remember. there. <laughs> they did, and I remember the smell. I remember yeah. the smell, and you know, obviously, you much like an accordion. It's like, well, yes, it is a little bit like an accordion. And you would take out, you know, the record out of the sleeve, and you'd put it on, you'd put the headphones on, and it was, it was like having a drink. Yeah. You know, do you fancy a drink, Steve? Yeah, fancy a drink. Let's just listen to uh, this bit of Stravinsky just right now. Do you know this bit of Stravinsky? No, I don't know it. Let's have a listen. And yeah. You just you drink it all in. Um, yeah. In this very very strange, low ceilinged, crowded place, you know, where you were just literally yeah. surrounded by all these records. Yeah. And actually, it really intensified listening for me. Yeah. Um, it, because it's so easy now. It's so wonderfully easy now, and um, I feel that there are so many choices. But you'd go down in that library and. Just 
just hope that that record was going to be there and that somebody else wasn't listening to it. And right, just, right. Then you'd drink it in, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, it was like an awakening because, I, you know, uh, when you're a, a kid on Long Island, you don't have access to that stuff. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and that's so much of the education, you know. The, yes. the real education for me at Berkeley came with all of the players there that were just so superior to me, you know, that, that you, you get to see, you actually get to experience something that's extraordinary, you know, that's, you, you, I wasn't going to experience that in my little town, you know, and even, even recording artists at the time that were my heroes, many of them couldn't, couldn't play nearly as ferociously or chops oriented as some of the a good handful of the students that yeah. went to Berkeley that inspired me. But then how does a kid from Long Island who probably spends a little too long playing the accordion, who eventually goes to Berkeley, yes, he's had his theory lessons, which is really great, but he goes to Berkeley and he's, he hears all these amazing people. How does he at that stage and at that age have a gentle attitude towards himself that doesn't say, oh man, I'm never going to play like that. Why am I even beginning? How did you ensure at that young age that actually that wasn't the way forward, not the way to think? There were insecurities that were just inherent in my psyche. And they showed themselves in my playing, but not, not in ways that were detrimental uh, so much. Like for instance... I knew I wanted to play and I didn't care. I didn't care what anybody thought. I didn't care about anything except I'm going to play the guitar, but I didn't tell anybody, you know, I kept it a secret. So that was a way that the insecurity kind of came out. Uh, but there was always like a little, you, you, and you know this, you, you know the feeling. There's a secret enjoyment in things that are interesting to you. There's like a, Ah, for some people, kids, maybe it's like building a, a model plant, a car out of glue or, you know, with glue or something. But it's an innocent pull. It's an innocent pull to joy. And it's subtle. It's and that I, I, I when I look back at my career, I think that's that's what I had, because a lot of times on the surface, there was psychological turmoil, you know, yeah. but there was always this this supremely reigning desire to innocently follow those things that were interesting to me. So I would hear blues players and I, I liked it, but I, I would feel, I can't do that. I'm never going to be able to do that. I don't want to do that really. <laughs> and why should I, when they're doing it already and it's so much better than it's just so, you know, you know, it doesn't mean that I don't play some blues, you know, classical guitar. I used to play it, you know, but I'd see it and I'd say, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not going to maybe if I put the time in, but do I have the desire? Really? Yeah. I have a desire, but not an overwhelming desire because you have to prioritize and you have to chase overwhelming desires and. Back then, I would listen to jazz and all of these things. They all seemed far superior to anything that I'd be able to do. But I didn't that didn't bother me. It was sort of like, mm. boy, there's a lot here to be inspired by. Yeah. And then what happened to to me 
was very innocent. I accidentally developed my own style because I, I just didn't feel good enough to play like anybody else. And, and I just was like, well, I can do this. I can't do that. So that's what, so, so there's a difference between saying, well, I can't do that. So I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm going to quit. And people do that. It's kind of crazy. They're cutting themselves short of a, of a great joy in life. Yeah. Because they pick up an instrument and they think they have to be great. And if they're not, they're a failure. This is insane. You know, an instrument is there for you to enjoy the sound and the feeling. And that is it. Everything else in my, that, that's what I did. And everything in my career came as a consequence of just that, you know, just, I don't know, but I like this. I can't do that. No way. So that's kind of my story. I love the idea that you say, I can't do that, no way, but maybe, you know, I can do this and maybe I can create my own sound. But what about the folks who go to wherever they're going, Berkeley or wherever, mm -hmm. and they think that they have a desire, but it's within the boundaries of what they know. And in the same way that you say that you would listen to a whole lot of Stravinsky or Frank Zappa or whoever it happened to be, and you drink in that. And what that does is it kind of broadens your horizons. It kind of broadens what you're experiencing. But what about the person? And I think there are so many people like this. And we've all been there in some way, I think, which is that I have a desire to be something, but I think that within my own boundaries that I've made up which is a bit of a judgment thing because I've decided I'm never going to be that so I think I better I better make sure that my desires are within my boundaries and maybe at the tender age of 18 or whatever I don't really understand what my desire is and what my boundaries are so I could be selling myself short by just saying hey I'm not going to bother doing that because I know I'm never going to get there and there are people that do that and there are people that come in, you know, they, they, and we'll use the guitar as an example. They come in and maybe they like blues and they see Stevie Ray Vaughan playing, yeah. who was, you know, absolutely. And where, where a young Steve Vai might say, that's great. I, I don't want to do, I can't, I don't want to. I love it. It's not me. Where someone else might say, that's great. I want a piece of that. I want to play like Stevie Ray Vaughan. And that's it, you know, and that is, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. They're not going to sound like him. No. You know, they're going to sound like themselves with, you know, like if I, like Kenny Wayne Shepherd is a good example. He's a big Stevie Ray Vaughan fan and he kicked off, you know, uh, inspired by him. But I've seen him grow through the years into his own, really his own player, you know. Yeah. So the impulses are there in you. And the tragedy is they're very obvious and we don't see them. They're, yeah. they're simple. They're simple desires that you have. They're re they speak to you very clearly, but we're just conditioned to blot them out or we're conditioned to believe we're not good enough for it. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. That's the thing. We have to be careful when we're being guilted in life. Because that's the thing that destroys your sense of dignity is people guilting you. You don't have to buy into it. I guess that's another story. Well, that's a really <laughs> good story because I think, oh, can we just touch on that? Maybe we can just touch on it. Sure, yeah. Guilting, it's a great word, isn't it? 
It's a great yeah. word, guilting. It's really active the way you use that. You're not just saying guilt or infused with guilt. You're saying guilting. And that's guilting. really, I, it, feel, it feels very active to me. It's very prevalent on the world stage. Okay. Say you know, more. politics and it's everywhere. It's in families. It's in relationships. And what it is, when you know what it is, then you can do something about it. When somebody is guilting you, you should do this, or you should have done that, or why didn't you do this, or you don't believe this? You, you believe that? What is wrong with you? So that's guilting. Yeah. Because it makes you feel like, well, and especially if it's, if it's like social uh, stuff, yeah, you know? Yeah, true. So what that is, when people are guilting you, they're in pain because that's fear. When, when, you're, when you're guilting somebody, what you're saying is you need to agree with me because if you don't, my security is gone and I'm going to go to hell or something. Right. You know, if, if yeah. you don't agree with me, then my self-created image of, my, of the false security that I have is going to be compromised because you don't believe what I believe keeps me safe. So this is a cry for help. Yes. It's a cry of insecurity. It, it, the only proper way to respond to an attack like that is love. I'm sorry. That is the only response. That will give you a result that has quality and a win-win for everybody. That's what a solution, that's a real solution is a win-win. And when you don't have that, the problem will just keep repeating itself in different forms. That's called history. <laughs> so if you can wreck, and here's the hardest thing. When you're being guilted, you feel bad about yourself. You feel like, yeah, you're right. You know what? Yeah. what, what you know. So you have to be able to recognize when you're doing that. Now, this doesn't, this doesn't take into account situations where people say, you did this, and it would have been much better off if you did this, this, and this. And you, you look at the situation, you go, oh, you're right. You're right. And good. Now I know. I'm a happy learner. You know, big difference. The ego doesn't allow that. So uh, when, when somebody is guilting you because of their own sense of fear and insecurity, you, you need to be able to recognize that. And the only way to be able to recognize it is to first not take it personally. Yes. yes. You can't take it personally. You have to. Mm. This is the goes back to what we were talking about in the very beginning, where when you meet somebody, you have to let them be, let them be, let them speak. Don't take it personally. And then you will have access to a, a proper relationship, a healthy, co-creative, helpful, solution-oriented relationship. Otherwise, you're just fighting and it never ends. And if it ends with that person, it's only going to pick itself up in another situation in a different form. Because it's not in the outside world. <laughs> it's an inside job. And until we recognize this, we will be believing that the world has power over us. So what this makes me think about is the idea that what about the situation where maybe you were a bit reactive? Somebody said something, don't you believe this? And you were a bit reactive and there you had a bit of argy-bargy and not good and actually... You didn't behave so well. 
And after that, you feel, I really wish I hadn't done that. It may be years later. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't quite behaved like that. The reason that you wish you hadn't d done it was because you, you didn't experience the results. If you didn't do it, you would not have experienced the results, which was the desire to never do it again. Why, I wish I hadn't done that. How do you know that you wish you hadn't done it? Because you did it. And it had an effect on you. Okay. So you, you have to do it in order to know that it's not what you want. It, lip service, words don't matter. Lip, lip, mm. Don't do this. How, how, how well does that work? When somebody says, don't do this, don't do that. You know, this is what's going to happen. In some cases, yeah, okay, I'm not going to do it. It's obvious. I'm not going to do that. But, you know, it, the only way we actually ever learn is, is through doing it and experiencing. And the vast majority of the times, the doing it based on your instincts turns out to be a really good thing. But it's that other percentage that is actually necessary for growth. Yeah, how do you know how do you know not to do something unless you do it and it and you don't like that you did it? I agree. But what about those people who will say, well, years later, I still feel bad that I did that because it wasn't just an, a decision that impacted on me, it impacted on the other person and it hurt the other person. And yet you can't necessarily have that conversation with that other person picking up where you think they left off because they're going to be in a different place, reading from a different mm. script, and we are going to be in a different place too. So how do you resolve that inside yourself? Well, I'll tell you, it'll sound a little bizarre, perhaps. But, I'm ready. Okay. We're all connected. All right. We don't, we don't know it in, the, in our current uh, state of awareness uh, through the ego. We don't real, we see everything as separate, but even scientists now are recognized we're actually connected. When you think of a person, you have no separate thoughts. When you can, you can heal a relationship without ever even speaking to that person again. Because your authentic intentions are felt on levels that don't require words. As a matter of fact, the, the words uh, will confuse things, even when you say them in your head. Mm -hmm. If you have a grievance with somebody... It's important to know that you, you're holding it. We hold, we hold those things against ourselves. They hold us. They are the destroyers of joy, destroyers of, of, of peace and, and, and creativity. And we can only do that to ourselves. So to recognize a grievance, how do you let it go? And because the, your, your, your peace is on the other side of that, no doubt. That's just, that's the way it is. So how do you let go of such a horrific grievance that somebody that you might have against somebody or yourself and forgiveness? That's the only answer, but not the word, not the forgiveness that the world knows because that uh -huh. has a quid, that has a quid quo pro in it. It does. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Forgiveness is like, I forgive you, but don't you forget it because I'll, <laughs> I'll be calling on you again. Yeah. What about that time I forgave you? <laughs> You know, that's the, you know, and, and, or, or even better yet, you know, the ego really loves the, I forgive you, you know, because I am the, I'm taking the high road. Yes, Don't you, you forget that I'm the one that took the high road first. Okay. So this is the world's 
idea of forgiveness, it doesn't work. True forgiveness is in the recognition that there's nothing to forgive because everybody is exactly where they're at at any particular time in their now, in their past. And every decision that they made in their now was the only decision that they could have made because it was the accumulation of everything that they learned beforehand. Okay. They, they, if somebody, when you say to somebody, why, why did you do that? You should have done something else, but they didn't. So why is that? Because they only had a particular set of tools at that time. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're not going to suffer the consequences of their actions, but it does mean that in one respect, they're responsible, but they're not responsible because they had no choice because they didn't have the tools Right. to make a different decision. So when we attack somebody or ourselves, this is so important. When you attack yourself for something that you believe you did to somebody else that hurt them, you, you are not recognizing that at that time, that was the tools you had and you made that decision and you're recognizing the consequences and now there is an opportunity to be a happy learner. Yeah. You can actually thank that other person for showing the deep re resentment that you were capable of. Because that other person, all those things they did, they, 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 that's where they were at. So that's forgiveness. You know, you, you, forgiveness is looking past it. It's, it's crazy. to. It's like saying to somebody, you know, don't be short. Why are you short, you know, or, or don't be black or don't be white. It's insane. Everybody is where they're at and they're learning and they need each. We need each other to learn and we need happy learners. And we have to understand what what actual forgiveness is. It's actually very easy when you recognize what it is and then you realize there's nothing to forgive. They can't forgive the person. They had no choice, you know, so this is a very lofty principle. And for people to wrap their brain around it, it's, it's very difficult because there are issues and situations in people's life where there is no way I'm forgiving that person. There's no, do you know what they did? Do right. you know what they did to me, to my family? You know, or, or do you know what I did? Do, I can't, you know, and everybody, trust me, has a dark secret. Well, they believe, they believe they have they believe a dark have, secret. Yeah. yeah, they believe that there's just, everything would be great in life if it wasn't just for this one thing, you know? So this, this, is, uh, this is what you have to forgive because there isn't a one thing. There's nothing. It's all, it's all learning. And when you become a happy learner, meaning you're able to recognize how your actions, whether they were blame or, or, or judgment or guilt, how they help reshape your perspective on yourself and the world. And if you take the route of guilt, that, that's hell. That's, mm -hmm. that's actually hell. That's what hell is, mental anguish brought on by guilt. So, the, it, it, but it's an illusion. It's an illusion only of the human mind. It doesn't really exist. It, it exists in the human mind, which creates hell. But not in reality. There's no, there is none.
Don't you think this is interesting um, for this kind of breakfast time conversation? We've I have it. You bring it out of me, Susie. <laughs> no, and listen, I so didn't mean to. But the fact is, it's great because you end up saying you can be a happy learner. And actually, that just takes me back to Stevie playing the accordion all those <laughs> years ago. And it's just absolutely brilliant. There are so many things and so many conversations that we're going to be having. And I'm so pleased that you have been here today to just share this space with me. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And um, I know I'm, I'm, I'm talking a lot, but I, I'm, I'm interested in hearing your... You have great questions too, though. It's amazing. I mean, I do interviews all day and you go, you know, you, you ask, but then what about... And that's nice. Thanks so much for coming on board for this conversation. There are many more I can't wait to share with you. So do click the subscribe button. And if you want to come and find me, find me on Instagram or Patreon. And I definitely hope to see you here really soon. Thanks so much. <laughs>